Hidden in Plain Sight, The Blackstones, by Peter White, read by Duncan McGoughlin. Episode 1 Chapter 1 Country Roads William woke up as the car buzzed over the rumble strip, marking the exit for Amblefield. He knew that they were almost there when his phone lost signal as it always did, and the podcast that he was listening to had cut out. He had been asleep for at least an hour, and in that time, the sun was almost put to bed. He had become bored of counting cars among the backdrop of tall trees, and listening to his parents bicker about the everyday things they disliked about each other. Lack of money, rent, the car, and of course, William. When William woke, they weren't arguing anymore, but they weren't speaking either. The open passenger window filled the car with a breeze and added to the tension. Amblefield was a picture-postcard English village. The type you can see in the movies where people say things like, Good morning! and After you! while opening doors for each other. It had two pubs, a duck pond, and a village shop that still closed on Sundays, near a very old church that dated back to the 12th century. They drove through the village, past the shop and up the twisty hill where his granny and grampy lived. As they pulled into the large horseshoe-shaped drive, the white timber front of the house revealed itself in the setting sun. The ivy had grown a lot since the last time they visited and glowed almost purple in the red hue. Grampy must have heard the car coming from a mile off. The exhaust was louder than most and he was already stood waiting on the drive. The catalytic converter had been stolen a few months back by some scumbag while William's dad was in the job centre. Another failed attempt to get a job. He still didn't have a job, so couldn't fix the car, and when the eviction notice letter hit the doormat, it was all a bit much, really. So, Lindsay Fairchild had decided to do what he'd always done in times of crisis. Go home. Lindsay, darling! Granny cried, arms outstretched to William's dad, ignoring everyone else, including William. Grampy put out his hand to shake William's like an old schoolmaster. You have grown, my boy. It's true, he had just turned twenty, a late bloomer, but he'd gained a lot of height and width since he last saw him. Now, William, he said to him sternly, have you been working hard? William nodded as much as the lie would let him. Did you get the birthday card I sent you? Grampy whispered. Yes, thanks for the cash, William whispered back. William had been completely preoccupied in the last couple of years with the discovery of parties, that the prospect of having to study any more was quite unappealing. He was in the last year of university, at a cost of £9,000 a year, plus living expenses, he'd be starting his working life at 21, with a degree in fine art, no work experience at all, and more than £30,000 in debt. All he had read about is how this country was bouncing from one recession to another, and that graduates are working in supermarkets as they are the only places still hiring that pay a living wage. I'll get the bags then, yeah? William shouted as everyone else had already walked up the steps and into the house. His parents were ignoring him, and his dad was enjoying being the centre of attention for a change. He opened the boot of the car and seized the handles of two rather large suitcases. One was new and black, but the other was an old brown one, covered in coloured stickers from various countries. He tilted it to see more of the labels, but as he did so, the handle snapped off in his hand, sending the case into the gravel with a crunch. The case balanced on its edge for a split second before opening like a clam on the driveway. Ah! 
he shouted and looked up at the crimson sky like he was expecting to be struck by lightning. And that's when he saw them, a pair of eyes and brown curls of hair, who was being watched by a neighbour in the house opposite. The head disappeared rapidly and the light was turned off moments later. He turned back to the case and all of the clothes now spread out on the drive. He opened the case and straightened it out to pack things back in. Inside the case, on the top lid, were some weird symbols and letters hand-painted on with quite some skill and care. H-I-D-E He was confused for a second, but could feel the spit of rain starting, so he packed the case and wrestled it up to the house as fast as possible. Chapter 2 The Next Day Good morning, William, Granny said curtly as he walked down the stairs and into the kitchen for breakfast. She was cracking eggs into a bowl, a mere two dozen as usual. William's granny, for all her faults, loved to feed people, and William loved their house. It had a beautiful entrance hall with a cuckoo clock, light fittings with crystal hanging from them, and an old oil painting of a colonial-era military man with one hand stuffed in his waistcoat, looking like he really needs to sneeze, probably from Granny's constant dusting. The kitchen was huge, with a rustic farm table that has seated twenty in the past at a push. A big green and black oven took pride of place in the centre, and it always had something either in it or on it bubbling away, filling the ground floor with the most appetising smells. William was the first down, so he had to deal with a stilted conversation with his granny alone, while she made a breakfast big enough to feed most of the village. He placed his book on the table, face down. So how is, um, school? She asked, frying half a pig's worth of bacon in the pan. I'm twenty, Granny. I'm at uni now, said William, with as much politeness as he could muster. Of course you are, dear. So, um, tea? Yes, please, Granny. He stared at his phone, willing it to suddenly find some signal, but nothing happened. She poured a cup of tea for him in one of her fine bone-china cups and set it down on the table in front of him. Um, so, here we go again. How long are you staying for this time? Or shall I ask your mum? William's mother was always better at dealing with Granny. The years of wear from her barbed comments created a thick, impenetrable skin. Just a week, I think. Just a week. William's dad came shimmying down the stairs with an urgency, already with his finger pointing, so he knew this would not be good. Good morning, darling, Granny beamed cheerfully from across the kitchen, her mood dramatically improved by his mere presence. He looked at her briefly, hello, mother, cheerfully and bashfully, before turning his pointing finger to William, the smile falling away like tissue in the rain. The weight of his stare was uncomfortable. Why did you leave our new suitcase out in the rain yesterday, hmm? And the other one now has no handle. Gone! Completely! Sorry. That doesn't sound like much of a sorry. William's dad has always been obsessed with apologies, even more than fixing the problem itself, and he will make you repeat the sorry in multiple ways until he believes it. These days, William knows the game, so he makes him really work hard for his apologies. There was the time when he was five and happened to be playing with his dad's keys and locked him out of the house with himself inside. Or the time when William was ten and he removed one of his car wheels as he'd seen how to do it on the telly. 
He guessed he must have nipped into the kitchen for a snack when they showed the part on how to use the jack. Oh, and the most recent one, William enrolled his dad into becoming an Avon representative. He'd seen the adverts with the promise of regular money, flexible hours and wonderful in-house discounts. Being a bloke with a name like Lindsay was a blessing in the female-dominated industry. You should have seen the look on the Avon area manager's face when William's dad opened the door. Lindsay Fairchild? she asked. Yes, he said, thinking he'd won the postcode lottery. Her heavily moisturised face sank. Alas, he didn't take that job either. Wasn't the right fit. He'd said that a lot. And William often thought, well, neither do most of his clothes. But he still wore them until they were threadbare. William can still flick his anger switch from one to a hundred with two simple words. Avon calling! Today was not a day for the angry switch. In the light of a brighter day pouring through the kitchen windows, William could now see the damp patches on his dad's shirt and trousers too. It took all his inner strength to stifle the chuckle that was building inside of him and made its way up and out of him like a tick in the form of a <laughs> Fortunately, at that exact moment, his grampy was at the foot of the stairs. He walked into the kitchen, closely followed by William's mother. Good morning, gentlemen. Sleep well? said Grampy, as he wandered over to Granny, who was standing by the oven, spatula in hand, tending to the black pudding. Don't point, Lindsay. He locked eyes with William and winked. He had the most piercing green eyes that didn't look like they belonged to a man of his age. They both nodded, and his dad put away his finger at last. I'll deal with you later, he said. And get that crap book off the table. Grampy kissed Granny briefly on the cheek and took his place at the head of the table. Sorry I was late down. I was on the phone to Cherry. She's been away on business again. William's Aunt Cherry was a bit of a mystery. William had only met her twice, once when he was six, and then again when he'd finished secondary school. He gathered that she was only a few years older than his dad, but a very different character altogether. A high flyer, you might say, always jetting off somewhere for a business deal or opportunity. Granny didn't even ask how she was, which he thought was odd. She was obviously too fixated on getting the hash browns to stack. So what's the plan today then, son? Grampy asked, looking at Lindsay, just before he bit into his first doorstep piece of toast. Carol and I were planning on a walk up to the grove, said Lindsay, as Granny piled his plate. William's mum sat down with her coffee. Maybe some lunch by the canal, she suggested, as she stirred knowing full well that William's dad wouldn't spend a penny on unnecessary things like that. Then tonight, said Lindsay, with a pause for maximum effect to evidence the rarity of an invite out, it's Steve and Maxine's party. Steve McIntyre, you must remember Steve, Dad. Oh yes, Grampy said. How could I forget the gangly lad with the, um, you know, issues? Gesturing awkwardly to his trousers. Steve had ingrained himself into the memory of Grampy forever by constantly needing a wee. Years ago, when Steve and Lindsay were younger, Grampy had caught him weeing in the garden all over Granny's rosebush. And once, he even saw him wee up the side of the garage behind the car. That was 25 years ago. But if the wind is right, Grampy could swear that rosebush still smelt of asparagus. I remember the time he weed in the vase at that Christmas do. Here's hoping for a drier night tonight, William's mum said wearily. Steve and his wife were having a big party tonight. It was their wedding anniversary, and they planned to do it in style. They had met 15 years ago 
on the hard shoulder of the M1 near Birmingham. Steve had pulled over in a rush to have, you guessed it, his tenth wee in a bush. Just as he was walking back to the car, she rolled up behind his with a flat tyre. He offered a help, and that was that. That wasn't really that. He couldn't undo the nuts either, but he waited with her for the AA to arrive. What a bloody hero. Fifteen years on, they now lived in one of the new houses on the edge of Amblefield, the ones referred to by the locals as modern and ghastly. Funnily enough, those would have been the perfect names for their two children, who were the most entitled and spoiled brats you could ever meet. William had also been invited to this party, but he really couldn't face it. The idea of having to pretend that everything was okay and being excited about his future to a number of his dad's childhood friends made him feel like a fraud. He decided the best thing to do was to stay at home and see if he could spend some time with Grampy. Well, said Grampy, sounds like an action-packed day, as he drummed on the table. Say hello to Pisspot for me and his devil's spawn. Andrew! Granny shouted. She slowly regained her composure and calmly spoke as she buttered her twentieth bit of toast. That's no way to speak about Lindsay's friend, even if his children are truly, truly horrible. After returning from their walk, showering and faffing about to get ready, William's parents finally left the house at 7pm and started their walk across the village. The red October sky was already fading fast into the hills and the trees swayed casually in the breeze. Inside, Granny was up on a chair again, dusting in the lounge. She honestly seemed to be happiest when she was cleaning, humming to herself some awful old Last Night of the Proms Empire tune that was practically unrecognisable. Bum ba Irritating. William was a few chapters into his book when she said, Why don't you put that awful book down and go and see your grampy in the attic? As she made a start on the ornaments on the coffee table. She didn't have to ask him twice. The sound of the clocks in the lounge and the hall were driving him crazy anyway, but they were slightly out of sync with each other, creating a cacophony of rhythms, like a hive of sewing machines. He climbed the stairs up to the first floor and looked at all the old pictures in frames that lined the landing. Some of his dad on his own in various nauseous poses. Some family ones. A much younger looking granny cuddling his dad as a boy, looking truly happy, whilst a younger grampy had his proud arm around his aunt Cherry as a teenager. She had the same emerald green eyes. There were no young pictures of Cherry though, which he thought was odd. At the end of the landing, he took the second stairway up to the attic room. At the top of the carpeted stairs was the door that was always kept shut, his grumpy's study. Chapter 3. H-I-D-E William hesitated for a moment, then knocked on the door twice. Come in, he heard his grumpy say from a distance. The door creaked a little at the hinges as he did so, and he closed the door behind him. The attic room was rather large, with windows fitted into squared-out dormer sections. An old red wine-coloured rug with chewed tassels clung to the middle of the floor, with varnished wooden floorboards either side. At the end of the avenue of bookcases was the desk that his grumpy had always sat at. He was busy stuffing some papers into a drawer hurriedly, before turning on his swivel chair to face him. William, my boy, what brings you up here? The study always smelled like a mixture of brandy and cigars. Two of his grampy's favourite things, 
so it was no surprise to William when he stood up, cracked open a window, and lit one. Cuban, he said, a gift from George, one of my oldest friends. What are you hiding? asked William, as he looked towards the drawer. Your granny's birthday card, he said, as he wafted the dense initial cigar smoke from his face. William knew that was a lie, but he couldn't be bothered to pry any further. Don't you have a party to be at? William told him that he didn't really fancy going, and said that he had a bit of a headache. He could always tell when he was lying too. Would you like a brandy, William? He used to use the same tone when William was seven and hankering after some ice cream. Okay then, he said. Last time he had drunk any brandy was in Freshers' Week. That didn't end well. And how about a game of chess? His grumpy said. Why not? It's been a while. He pulled out a small wicker table from beside his desk and opened a cabinet while William found a stall. He pulled a second crystal-cut brandy glass from his cabinet and poured him a rather large one. Any ice? asked William, but his grumpy just turned his head sideways as if to pity him and say, What do you bloody think? No ice, no, no ice is fine, said William coyly. The chessboard was set down and was just how he remembered it. Ivory and ebony squares set in orange mango wood. Heavy, yet intricately carved pieces were lined up on the board. Andrew preferred to play white, which meant he went first. William remembered playing chess at school and thinking it was the best game in the world. A brilliant blend of psychology, strategy and downright malice that brought out the best and the worst in most people. William sipped his brandy. The first few sips literally made him shudder like someone had just walked across his grave. As that calmed down, so did he, and he felt the cosy warmth of it settling in. The chess game started quite quickly, as usual, with a few pieces being lost just to tempt the other into making a grave mistake. When the game slowed, and there was more at stake, you could feel the tension rise. William tried to distract him. That old suitcase I broke, that used to be yours, didn't it? William asked. Yes he said, not taking his eye off the board. I noticed some letters painted on the side of it. H-I-D-E. What do they mean? He didn't look away from the board, but just said, Some things aren't all they seem, and some things you should never forget. Ever cryptic, his grampy. He's full of interesting and twisted phrases that don't really make sense to anyone but him, like a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush, or a rolling stone gathers no moss, or a personal favourite. Necessity is the mother of all invention. William thinks that he gets the last one. It means that if you really, really need something, you'll find a way to get it. He was still staring at the board intensely, and William was desperate to distract him from his rook. So he said something he shouldn't have. I'm thinking of moving to London after uni. Grampy's eyes shot up and fixed on his like never before. The green flash was more of a glow this time. I see. Why on earth would you want to do that? He said carefully. Well, some of my friends will be working in London and I'll find it easy to work if I'm there, I guess. Truth was, knowing his parents' situation with the house, the eviction letters and lack of money, they wouldn't have had space for him soon anyway. London is a very dangerous place to be, you know he said. I could tell you a few stories if it would help you change your mind. Feel free to, 
but I doubt it will put me off, said William. I suppose you're old enough now. He shuffled nervously. I shouldn't really, but he stopped himself short, holding his hands up in defeat. Let's keep this between us, eh? William agreed, and he poured some more brandy into both glasses. You know that I lost my father in the war. Yes, Dad used to tell me. That must have been hard, said William. Grumpy began. If I think hard enough, I can still remember being carried down the steps of Bound's Green Tube by my mother. We waited in silence in the lower depths as the bombs could be heard exploding all over London. The walls shook, and the noise was deafening, bouncing off the hard-tiled surfaces and echoing throughout the tunnels. I'd never been so scared, but we survived. I was eight when the war ended, and with my father no longer with us, it was just my mother and I. She had to work to support us, and that meant I had some freedom. Growing up in the rubble of London and having all the bomb sites to explore was a joy to behold. We found so many wonderful things abandoned by people in their houses. Some rooms were completely untouched with laid tables, checkered cloths with crockery and cutlery all set for dinner. Others were not so fortunate, with hardly anything left, or, in some places, everything would be soaked and peeled around the edges. The fire engines must have worked all night to put out some of the fires that threatened to engulf the city. One day, after school, when I was about ten, my friend Ed and I found a way into a locked bombsite near Mornington Crescent Tube. It was an old Georgian house, with large shuttered windows, high ceilings, and fancy architectural features. Obviously owned by a rich family, the back of the house must have taken a direct hit as the two rooms on the top floor were missing like they had been cut out with a bread knife for all the world to see, similar to a doll's house. At the back of the house, on the ground floor, there was a door that looked like it was just a cupboard. We would have left, but there was a cold draught coming from underneath the door. Is it a pantry? Ed asked. The door was stuck fast, so we had to find something to jimmy it open with. Ed cut his hand quite badly in the process, but wrapped it in the cleanest tea towel that we found on the kitchen side. I just wish we went home then. I wish that every day. Back in the study, the wind suddenly picked up and the window was flapping about in the breeze, banging against the dormer's edge. Grampy stood up and closed and latched the window, drawing the curtain too. It was getting a bit nippy in here anyway, he said. William felt cold too, but he wasn't sure if it was the wind or the creepy story. Where were we? asked Grampy. The cellar door, said William. Oh yes, that's right. We should have gone home. Chapter 4 Dark Places Grampy sat back down in his chair and picked up where he had left off. The door to the cellar was now open and hung off one hinge. We found a couple of candles and a box of matches in the kitchen drawer, lit them and headed down the stairs slowly into the cellar feeling quite nervous. Once down there, there wasn't much to see, to be honest. Some old classical records that were now ruined by damp, and a set of old rusty golf clubs. The only other thing was a single shelf on the farthest wall with a black ornament on it. The material was something I'd never seen before, like black glass. Even amongst all the damp and dust, it still sparkled in the candlelight. It was like the dust knew something we didn't.
The figure was of a man leant against a rock. We had the legs of a sheep, torso of a man, and a human head with ram horns, his index finger of his left hand, pursed against his lips as if to say, shh, and his right hand stretched outwards towards us with a little dish, barely big enough to fit a farthing on. I touched the dish to see what it would do, but nothing happened. On the shelf next to it was a miniature fountain pen, which I thought was odd. It was only when I pulled the lid off I realised it wasn't a pen at all, but a very sharp knife the size of a scalpel. What do you think this is? asked Ed. I have no idea. Ed's hands must have been throbbing now from cutting it on the door. How's your hand? I asked, as I pointed towards the blood already seeping through the tea towel. It'll be okay. I'll live, he said. I handed him the penknife, and he went to place it back on the shelf. But as the corner of the blood-soaked tea towel touched the little dish, the eyes of the figurine glowed red. We jumped back. The whole shelf started to vibrate quietly, and the outline of a door started to appear in the stonework around it. We had set something in motion and had no idea what would happen next. We moved back towards the stairs of the cellar and watched while the stone door opened inwards quite smoothly, leading to an impossibly dark tunnel. Looking at each other, we couldn't believe what we'd just seen. We felt the cold air rush into the cellar from the dark tunnel, nearly putting our candles out. I shielded mine so fiercely I almost burnt my hand. We moved towards the opening, but it was so dark that the light from the candles didn't seem to be able to penetrate the blackness. I went over first, into the void with my candle held out in front like a shield. Ed followed closely behind, so close in fact that I could feel the warmth of his breath on the back of my neck and smell the smouldering hair as his candle strayed too close to my head. Sorry, he whispered. I was so nervously excited about where we were going that I didn't even care. The tunnel was remarkably dry for something so old. I could feel the indentations of the flagstones beneath my feet. The tunnel turned to the right and then carried on for what felt like ages. And that's when we saw it. There was an opening at the end. When we reached the end of the tunnel, it opened up into a main chamber. The air felt instantly cleaner and the light from the streets above raised the overall light level. It was coming down from opaque glass blocks set in the pavement that was very high up, with occasional long shadows caused by pedestrians walking above. They have no idea what's below them, I thought. As we walked into the chamber, we could see that there was a whole network of tunnel openings that all seemed to meet at this very point. At least twenty or so. The largest tunnel was up the far end, and this was lit by torches, held near the walls by iron chains. Someone was here. Curiosity got the better of us as we crept quietly towards the torches. The flickering light illuminated the carved elements that stood out of the stonework. Too many symbols and faces to understand the meaning of it all. Halfway down the torch-lit tunnel was a heavily protected wooden door reinforced with metal but we could hear talking and laughter. The only way we could tell what was on the other side was to look through the keyhole halfway up the door. Ed looked first for what seemed like forever. I waited for him to say something, but he fell silent. 
and all the colour seemed to drain from his face. He moved over silently, like he'd seen a ghost, and stared at the wall behind us blankly. So I looked through too. Inside the room was a dinner party. The plush, red, candlelit room looked like it belonged in a five-star hotel, with huge, silver-framed mirrors on the walls, mink furnishings and a chandelier fit for a king. Bottles of champagne and red wine were dotted around the table, with silver-service waiters tending to the guests' every need. The diners were all in black tie attire, and the women were dressed like film stars. They all seemed to be wearing an item of silver jewellery, with a single black stone. Some had rings, and others bracelets or necklaces, all with the same type of black stone. I was still confused by Ed's reaction until I saw a middle-aged blonde woman opposite, who asked the man next to her to pass a bowl. As he did so, I saw the bowl was full of fingers, little fingers with knuckles and nails, blooded at the ends. These were not ordinary people. I didn't know it at the time, but these people were the worst type of people you could hope not to meet. These people were ritualistic Satanists, Blackstones, and on the menu today were what looked to be body parts, body parts of babies. They all seemed so calm and happy, like it was a celebration of some sort. Leg anyone? said a young man sat in the middle. Oh, yes, me please, said a young girl opposite him. The clink of glasses and laughter was at odds with what I could see. The man directly in front of me laughed as he pretended to try and steal food off another diner's plate, blood dripping down from his chin. As his gaze moved towards the room, his eyes suddenly fixed upon mine at the keyhole. It felt like an electric shock. It was like he could see into my soul. I lurched back from the door and inhaled deeply with panic. I felt sick. Ed still stared at the wall blankly. We both sat there in silence. We needed to get out of there. So I pulled a shell-shocked Ed up onto his feet and headed back towards the main chamber. We moved through the chamber as quickly as possible looking for the tunnel we came in from. They all looked the same. Why didn't we mark it? So, so stupid. I trusted my gut and chose one. With our candles held tightly, we walked once more into the pitch black tunnel and headed back towards the house. But it felt like this tunnel twisted in a different way. At the end of it, there was a similar arrangement though. It was just a simple shelf, with a knife this time, and a small black glass dish. I did the honours while Ed held our candle so I could see. I made a small cut on my little finger and squeezed it to let a drop of blood drip onto the dish. The door began to shake. As we waited for the door to open, the air moved and our candles blew out. Those few seconds in the pitch black felt like an eternity. The door opened inwards into a clean cellar that didn't smell the same as the first one in Mornington Crescent. Ed handed me my candle, and I relit it quickly and stepped into the new cellar. I turned around to look at Ed, still standing in the doorway. I tossed him a box of matches and remember seeing him trying to strike a match as a large, cloaked arm appeared out of the blackness and contorted around his neck. I looked on in terror as he gurgled once and vanished into the black, while the door rumbled shut behind him. I was now truly alone and petrified. I had to get out. Now. There were two flights of stairs out of the cellar. I got halfway up when I heard the stone door open up again and the deep voice said, Get him! 
I ran to the top of the stairs and opened the door out onto the street. It shut quietly behind me, and when I turned around, it didn't look like a door at all. No handle, just the side of a concrete railway bridge opposite the little park at Harrington Square. How on earth did I get here? I ran for as long as I could before my chest burned and my legs hurt, doubling back a few times just in case I was being followed. By the time I ran out of steam, I was in Somerstown, walking up towards Camden Road, holding the side where a stitch had developed a few streets back. My mum worked at the bakery near the tube and would be finishing her shift soon. I waited for her at the bench out front as I sometimes did, and we walked home together. You're quiet today. Good day at school, she had said. Okay, I had replied. Just okay, she inquired. Yes. That was my first introduction into the darker forces of the world, Grumpy said. He rested both of his hands on Williams, reassuringly. What? Really? Are you having me on, Grampy? You must be. He couldn't believe what he'd just heard. He'd read all sorts of ghost stories and strange tales on the internet, but this, this was in a league of its own. His Grampy waited for him to settle a bit before letting his hands go. What happened? What happened to Ed? William asked eagerly. No one really knows, but I never saw him again. The police came asking questions in the neighbourhood, but I noticed something that made the hairs of my arms stand up. Both of the policemen had small silver signet rings on their little fingers, with a little black stone, exactly the same kind that I saw in that room. So I lied. I said that Ed and I were supposed to meet up after school at the bombsite in Kentish Town, but he never showed. His mother put up posters for months. Every time I saw the picture of his face, it made me feel sick. That last look on his face before he gurgled and rolled into the black void stayed with me forever. What happened to her, his mum? William asked. Grampy's tone saddened. Later that year, there was a gas leak in her house. No survivors. He picked up the brandy glass and with one meaningful gulp, drank what was left. He upturned the glass like a town fair magician and gestured with his free hand as if to say, Vanished. Sounding vengeful now, he said, Who do you really think runs the world, William? Hidden in Plain Sight, The Blackstones, was written and produced by Peter White, read by Duncan McLaughlin, music and folio by Peter White.